The first one is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 16. And if any of you would like to follow it in the Pew Bible, it starts on page 837. It's under the heading, Saul's Conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. <coughs> so he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring both men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus, on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to, to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord explained Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorised by leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And secondly, from Matthew, and this is um, on page uh, 735 of the Pew Bible, and it's under the heading, The Sermon on the Mount. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you, persecute you, lie about you, and will say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember... The ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Yesterday, I slipped down to Dunedin to see my oldest daughter, Grace. Uh, and it was because uh, that evening, her, along with the Dunedin Symphony Orchestra and the um, 
City Choir, Dunedin City Choir, uh, were performing, presenting Handel's Messiah. Uh, it was beautiful. It really was lovely. First time I'd been able to see a, a live performance of it um, and the full of, uh, version of it too. And it was exciting because like, um, I, I chat to the people beside me beforehand and of course you get into conversation about why you're there and uh, so they ask, oh, you have someone uh, involved in it? And so I was a proud dad with Grace playing viola. But I was also a proud employee because when you get to um, chat and you say, well, what, were you, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I work for the guy that we're singing about tonight. Um, and it's so exciting. You know, we had a, a, a retired um, lecturer of political studies on one hand, someone else over here. I was just excited. It's like when it comes to um, the God's triumph and, we, and the audience stand, um, I was bursting at scenes. I was wanting to turn around and say, this is the guy I work for. This is my boss. It was, it was lovely. It was, uh, brought a lovely emotion to hearing and, and seeing that. And it made me think a wee bit about um, the whole performance. Three steps on it, which we try and do here at church too. First of all, like Handel, we take the word of God and we really focus on it. You know, there's sections where there's just two or three lines and it goes on for a while and it just reminds us and repeats us about those sections. And Alistair and I try and bring a little segment of God's word, like the Beatitudes, a little bit at a time, a few verses, uh, and help us to focus on that. And then you've got Handel uh, along with the conductor, and we had the soprano, the alto, the tenor, and the bass, and the orchestra, who bring the message, just like Alistair and I have tried to bring the message. In. And we have different tangents. You could um, listen to a message, same um, verses, but from someone else, it might be slightly different. Still similar because we're looking at the Bible, looking at God's Word. Um, but you'll see different tangents, different things that we bring. For example, you'll notice that often when I'm looking at the Beatitudes, I'll bring another piece of scripture um, to tie into it. That's just how I present. And then the third part is the um, response by the congregation or the audience. And so, you know, uh, being an uncultured Woodburyite, um, I, I'd heard, but I'd never been there to stand when uh, God's triumph, the hallelujah, comes in. That was exciting, and it was our response. Uh, so too, over the, the last eight weeks, as we've been looking at the Beatitudes, the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's been lovely to talk to other people and, and different things that hit their hearts when we um, read the Word, um, because there's uh, an experience of had and so forth. So again, as we... Um, complete with the eight Beatitudes, uh, you, we have the Word of God before us. Uh, I get to present it today, uh, but your experience, your understanding of the Word, hopefully will draw you to different little bits and pieces which um, challenge us, but also encourage us. So we have been uh, working on the Beatitudes for the last eight weeks or so. It began with Jesus turning the world's values upside down. We thought we had the, got to the climax on the sixth beatitude when we were told that those pure in a heart set apart for God would see his face and his presence in our lives. Then we saw more added to this beautiful blessing by learning that as peacemakers, we did not just see him, but would be called his children. Imagine the anticipation and atmosphere in the air as Jesus announces the final beatitude, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Not if, but when. Perhaps Jesus' audience 
uh, in his audience, there was an ability to relate to this more so with the tension of being under Roman authority. There was open and obvious persecution in the community. And the early church certainly knew persecution. But in our culture and community, persecution for doing what is right, for standing up for the truth of Jesus Christ, seems so minimalistic compared to what Christians face in other cultures. And at best, we might be ignored for our beliefs. For this reason, I think we tend to be ignorant of particular incidences of persecution in the lives of Christians in our midst. We either don't speak of it because it doesn't seem as important as those overseas, or we simply don't want to hear about it because it's more comfortable to keep it at arm's length rather than accepting it in our midst. At a recent meeting with other leaders within the presbytery, uh, there was this common feeling that there was desperation about our culture, that what we'd been seeing over the last few months had actually worn people out and thinking what we were proud about as a culture was really being shook. And I think Roger Wilson shared about praying for our nation and for the government. We now have a new government, as Roger said in a prayer. Uh, let's pray that God is abundant and working in their midst. Uh, what will come forth? And so please make sure you pray again today for the government and during the week and ongoing. Also, I think uh, the last few days, reading in the news about the anti-Semitism right on our doorstep. Again, another example of something different, something wrong in our culture. And talking to an individual just also the last few days uh, who had been a missionary and different persecution, not just when she was a missionary, but even in this culture, even through her life, different ways that this has come. Persecution of God's children is no longer something that just happens overseas. It is becoming an everyday event and shifts into whatever appropriate form our own society permits. So today, as we consider this final beatitude, my prayer is in some way that you are encouraged to endure to do what is right. Whether you might um, have to face physical, verbal or spiritual persecution, to make sure that you stand firm in the truth of Christ and what he reveals to you as is right. To consider this, I want to look at the Apostle Paul's life. So our first reading uh, was his encounter on the road to Damascus. And uh, Paul, formerly known as Saul, was certain that he was a righteous, pious man who was adamant that his religious views were right. He followed the religion of the Pharisees, a religion of man rather than from God. His former life and ways reflect the religious mindset of this world. Today we have a worldly philosophy surrounding us in which man knows best. It is a philosophy that states that if God does exist, then mankind has superseded this intelligent being with a tolerance to all views of life rather than there being just only one truth. And if a Christian or a church is going to be bold enough to suggest that there is an absolute truth rather than all ideas and religions being equal, then that Christian or church needs to be squashed. And that's the philosophy they have. This sort of talk tends to come from a godless mocker. A mocker is against God and anyone who chooses to do God's work. In their own arrogance, 
a mocker believes that they have the power to silence God and the best way they can see to attack God is to attack his children. It's coming up to the Christmas season, as we've um, been sharing in the notices. There are people in our community who wish that all Christian festivity of a central Christian event would cease to exist. They are the modern-day mockers. They think that society today and their voices are power enough, powerful enough to get rid of all belief in Jesus, something which uh, the powers that be, God's enemies and the strongholds there, have not been able to do for the last 2,000 years. And they presume that if they can ridicule Christians and churches, then God's children will eventually bend over to their persecution. Oh, how wrong they are. You see, while their thoughts are on persecution, the lens we look through in such situations is through how we can demonstrate our faithfulness to God. Ephesians 6, we've read that over the last few weeks, reminded us to hold on to the shield of faith that will extinguish all the fiery arrows of the enemy. When you are being persecuted for doing right in whatever form that comes, that attack is directed at God and his truth and righteousness. Note what happens, uh, happened when Paul was confronted by the risen Lord on the road to Damascus as he journeys to persecute God's children. We read that um, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus didn't say to Paul, why are you persecuting my followers, my disciples? He said, why are you persecuting me? And I'm reminded of the verse uh, where we're reminded that whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. You're children of God. He loves you dearly. He'll fight for you dearly. There is a significant warning to be considered here as well. Because the worst scenario is when persecution against a Christian would come within a church. While there needs to be discipline and rebuke at times, we must be very, very careful and very, very aware of our motives, especially in our words that we are not attacking and therefore persecuting one another. And we must also make sure that our inaction, our lack of action, is not designed to do the same thing. Make sure that our lack of action is not our form of punishing or persecuting another. Because if we act in such a way within the church, then we're really simply attacking Jesus himself. Jesus, in, uh, in the fifth discourse in Matthew 25, we hear of him talking about the final judgment. And he says to a group of people who said, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison or not, and not help you? And he responds to this group, he says, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're refusing to help me. A lack of action to one another, a lack of love to one another, is a persecution towards Jesus. And then we have... Jesus speaking about um, Saul, Paul, knowing what um, he has in store for him. He says to Ananias, he says, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Finally, when Jesus reveals himself to Paul, it's the beginning of the teaching of the Beatitudes to this man. 
Paul wasn't there at the Sermon on the Mount. He gets to live it out and see and understand it as he learns more about Jesus. Paul is going to learn what it means to be poor in spirit. He's going to mourn over his own sin, calling himself the worst of sinners. He's going to repent and he's going to hunger and thirst for God's righteousness to be spoken to all the Gentile nations. He's going to be persecuted for being God's peacemaker as he makes connections with the unsaved to reveal to them the gospel message. He's going to know physical persecution, beaten, assassination attempts on his life, left for dead, and finally to lose his life for Jesus. He's going to be verbally abused. People will make up lies about Paul to get him into trouble and to get people angry with him. And if we want to look at a good example of what it might look like to have the right attitude as described in the Beatitudes, the Apostle Paul is an excellent example to study. Paul's second letter to Timothy demonstrates what, he ex- what to expect in our community and why persecution will rise against those who choose to live in God's righteousness. Paul says this to Timothy, But mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then the next section of the letter, he goes on to talk about how some of these people are actually within the church. They persecute the church and the false teachers like Mark um, shared with us last week. And that Christians should expect persecution just as Paul faced persecution. And he reminds us of how to respond in such a society and in such ways. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In another of his letters, Paul reveals the right attitude to have in all situations, even under persecution. In Philippians, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. To be genuinely content, a person must not be self-serving, but self-sacrificing. He must be gentle, merciful, pure in heart, yearn for righteousness and seek to make peace on God's terms, even if those attitudes toward cause him to suffer. If we choose to live faithfully in the first seven Beatitudes, then expect the eighth to come about too. Let's have a very quick look just at the three forms of persecution I mentioned, physical verbal and spiritual with the physical we see the worst form of persecution the physical form occur in the first few chapters in Genesis Abel was persecuted because what he offered to God was a righteous gift not for other conflicts between him and his brother 
Cain premeditated murdering his own brother because of the distance he had created between himself and God. Along with Apostle Paul, we can also read of people of faith like Moses, who chose, persecuted, chose to associate with his Israelite nation rather than continue with the riches of the Egyptian upbringing. Or Daniel, who was persecuted for his good character. We can expect a rise of persecution as the time of Christ's appearance draws closer. The believer will need to have an attitude of self-sacrifice and a willingness to face persecution for the sake of God's righteousness. God does not want his gospel altered under pretense of its being less demanding, less righteous or less truthful than it is. He does not want witnesses who lead the unsaved into thinking that the Christ life costs nothing. A synthetic gospel, a man-made seed, produces no real fruit. In verbal persecution, perhaps the most common form of persecution a Christian or church in our culture might expect to receive. Verbal abuse or mockery. And in our culture, of course, that can happen behind our backs, not just to our faces. Again, it won't necessarily be because of the conflict between two people. It will be the tension between a mocker and God. And as I mentioned earlier, the mocker is described as a godless person in Proverbs who goes out of his way to cause disruption to anybody who would stand firm on God's word. Again, the tension is between that person and God. But as God's peacemakers, his messengers expect to get the brunt of the physical or verbal attack. And then there's also spiritual persecution, which can come in many ways and includes physical and verbal persecution. Vandalism can be a physical, spiritual attack. Online deception and hacking can be a form of spiritual, verbal persecution. These forms aren't always spiritual attacks, but often if you look at the coincidental timing of such things happening, then you may be able to recognize the spiritual persecution upon you. So often I see that timing. If something like that happens, it might be when I'm doing something or people are doing something towards serving God. And if you suspect that, then make sure you pray about it and get others to you trust to pray for you as well. Spiritual persecution comes from the evil one, from Satan and the demonic powers within this world. We know that Satan has been given authority over the world for the time being. We know that we are at war with the principalities of this world. And at the end of the Armour of God um, section in Ephesians 6, uh, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Their attack and persecution will come in many forms. It's not only through a personal persecution, but can come upon members of your family. Spiritual persecution can come in the form of ill health. Paul speaks about a thorn in his side, a possible illness that was a spiritual persecution to him. Uh, it can come as an attack on your property, possessions and finances. If you're not sure about that, just read the book of Job. It may come as an attack on your time and ability to do God's work. We need to be aware of this. I don't want you to take it the wrong way. Not every little thing that goes bad in our days is a spiritual attack. But it's worth being aware that Satan will use our health, property and daily lives as a way to, of attack 
and persecution against God's children. In the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains our attitude in a world that will be at odds with us and our faithfulness to him. We're told to be salt of the earth and light to this world, and we're told to rejoice, to be joyful and glad in our attitude to our role or place in this world. The eighth beatitude rounds all the section on the Sermon on the Mount with an underlying question to us that we see Jesus also asked individuals and his disciples, and he asks us that question today. Are you prepared to give up everything and anything to follow him? The promise of inheriting the kingdom of God began the Beatitudes, and it concludes the Beatitudes. The Apostle Paul, as I said, never got to hear the Sermon on the Mount, but he learned through special revelation what Jesus meant by living out the Beatitudes. And he learned them through following Jesus' desire on his life. Paul's life is a living testimony of what it means to live by the Beatitudes Jesus gave. His second letter to Corinthians describes the life of a Christian who is prepared to abide by them. And as we conclude um, the Beatitudes, but which is just the prologue of the Sermon on the Mount, let me read to you from his second uh, letter to Corinthians what he, he describes and see the connections with the Beatitudes. Paul says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we can mend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in our right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. If the persecution and death of God's own Son was the only way mankind could be reconciled to God, then are you willing to also carry your cross and see God's Spirit reconcile others to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I ask that we take time to read it again and again. Just like um, I'm reminded of Handel's Messiah, where there's a response from the audience, Lord, let us respond today. Let us take up our own cross, ready to follow you, no matter what it may ask. But let us be together to encourage one another, to be peacemakers, to be bold enough to share your message to this world. And let we see your Holy Spirit bringing others to know you and into your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.